0: Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. It's good to have you all here today. We're in the Gospel of uh, John, not Gospel, but the Book of John, Epistle of John. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there and... um, we're going to be talking about the evidences for a, a genuine, authentic Christian life, and uh, it's a wonderful book written by John, the Apostle of Love. Doug talked about that last week. It was written from Ephesus, uh, one of the one of the last books to be written in the New Testament. In the city of Ephesus, they faced dangers and difficulties of of believers living in an extremely pagan world, and. Um, uh, they were given over to the worship basically of everything. They worshiped human wisdom. They worshiped human abilities. They, they worshiped every form of, of sex that you can imagine. And I, I think it's, it's very applicable uh, to our culture, to living as a believer in, in our culture here in Iowa City or anywhere in the United States or world. And the book of First John basically answers this question How can we live? Authentic Christian lives in the face of a culture which is so radically different from everything the gospel stands for. And so, throughout the book, what we're going to find are three words that John repeats over and over and over. These three words are the words righteousness, truth, and love. There are eight verses that contain the word righteousness or righteous, there are eight verses that contain uh, the word truth and there are 26 verses that contains the, the word love. So it talks about the, these three, these three words uh, really reflect the perfect balance of living in a, a genuine, authentic Christian life. A uh, Truth, what, what do we believe about Jesus? Is what we believe about Jesus correct? Uh, righteousness, does our attitude and behavior reflect our relationship with Jesus Christ? And then love. Do we love as uh, God wants us to love? Do we love God with all of our heart? Do we love Jesus? Do we love um, the world as well with godly love, unconditional love? Well, how do I know if I am an authentic Christian? We're, we're going to find that the whole book was written so that we can have confidence uh, and assurance that we genuinely are believers in Jesus Christ. So uh, what John does is he, he'll give us these tests to take, so to speak, to, to verify the authenticity of our faith. Uh, there's the love test, Do I love God? Do I love the people of God? There's the moral test. Do I actually, with all of my heart, want to obey? And do I obey the commands of God? And then the uh, doctrinal test. Do I believe that Jesus is uh, the Son of God? Is he God himself? (coughs) And we'll always use different kinds of tests to to test different things to see if they're genuine or not. Uh, If you hand a $100 bill to a cashier, they'll hold that $100 bill up to the light to make sure it's genuine. Or if uh, somebody that you're dating gives you a diamond ring, the first thing you'll do is take it to a jeweler and they'll put it under a microscope or under a jeweler's loop to make sure it's the real deal. You'll want to test that diamond and make sure it's real. Or maybe you're a chemistry major and you want to test the chemical composition of something. So you might test boiling points, you might use a mass spectrometer or something to, to test what the chemicals are. And so that's exactly what uh, John does here. He'll want to put your, your life under the heat, under the light, and say, because he wants you to have assurance. If you, and if you're not, he, he wants to help you get to the point where you put your faith and your trust in Christ. So let's look, first of all, at the love test. Do I love Jesus more than I love the world? 1 John 2, starting in the verse uh, number 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, notice how it's pretty specific here. You know, we use the expression moderation in all things. He doesn't use the word moderation at all, like, a oh, little of it's okay, it's not harmful. He just makes it real clear, present tense, uh, very clear, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. And he talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. So we're by nature worshipers and lovers, and the only question is, what will we worship? What will we love? Uh, let me first tell you what this text is not saying. Uh, what this text is. And and it's the same word, same Greek word, cosmos, whether it's talking about uh, the world that was created or the world. And and John, he'll also use the world to depict uh, people, for God so loved the world. So what it's not saying is that you're not to love people in the world, for God so loved the world, because Jesus, God loves the world and gave his son. He's not talking about the cosmos, because when the world was created. He created it in seven days and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. So he's not talking about the physical world there. The Greeks would use the term though to depict whether it's the physical world, but they would also use the term, and this is how John uses it here, Uh, to uh, talk about a spiritual system that's opposed to God. Now that's how the word is used in this context. It's a spiritual system that's opposed to God. It could be people or it could be in other places John talks about demons are opposed to God. That's the world that he's talking about here. It doesn't mean that when he says don't love the world of things in the world that you can't work for the Department of Natural Resources. It doesn't mean that you can't be uh, a governing official, or you should never be involved in politics. It doesn't mean that at all. You shouldn't be a fireman. You shouldn't be a policeman. That's not at all what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the relationship we should have to the world, we'll make this more clear as we go through it, is that we should be in the world, but not of the world. We should be in it to make a tremendous impact on this world. We should make a tremendous impact on Iowa City. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 29.7. We need to seek the welfare of Iowa City. He said, seek the welfare of the city, meaning Babylon. Uh, This is a horrible place. Uh, Seek the welfare. The believers there, seek the welfare of Babylon. We should seek the welfare of Iowa City. He says, where I have sent you into exile... And this should be your prayer. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's what we should do for Iowa City. We should pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, that's the connection. So it doesn't mean don't like Iowa City or don't like the city where God has you. It doesn't mean that whatsoever. So we're to work for the prosperity of the city where God has placed us. Uh, that's why over the last 27 years I've said uh, part, of the, part of the desire of Parkview is to be a blessing to Iowa City, to be a blessing to, to Johnson County. So what is this text actually saying? Don't love the world or the things in the world. What's he talking about? He's, and as I mentioned before, he is talking about this, this system, the this spiritual system. Um, but the Apostle Paul sort of mirrors this text and he uh, incorporates everything that John has talked about before, about loving God, don't love the world, but loving God, Paul puts it all in one neat little package in Romans 12. And he has these three principles here. Let's look at the first principle in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's what what it means. You're you're not to love the world. You're to love God. And this is what John has talked about before, and he talks about it later as well. So loving God means a total commitment of your total life to Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Don't love the world, the things in the world, but your love should be a total commitment to Jesus Christ uh, himself. And the reason is, for this dedication. The reason that you should make this dedication is because of God's mercy. In other words, if God has been so good to us by giving His Son to die for us and to give us new life, surely we should give our lives back to Him. That's dedication. Um, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice it's voluntary, isn't it? Present. I urge you to present your bodies. But it's also extremely personal. Present your bodies. But it's total, a living sacrifice. So the first principle is dedication. The next principle is insulation. Now, I'll make it real clear. Don't love the world, things in the world. Uh, It's not talking about isolationism, and it's not talking about imitation. I'm talking, and I'll illustrate it, insulation uh, from the world. Paul puts it like this. When when John says don't love the world of the things in the world, Paul puts it this way, do not be conformed to this world. Again, he's not talking about the creation. You should you should love the creation. You should enjoy the creation. You should enjoy people. You, God loved the people. For God so loved the world, we're to love the people in the world too. It's not what he's talking about. So make that real clear. Uh, We we spent a a day going through Yellowstone a week or so ago. We loved every minute of it. We enjoyed God's beautiful creation, what what he did. So that's not what it's talking about, but it's talking about that value system. Don't get caught up in this. And I think the Phillips paraphrase makes it real clear. When Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, Philip's paraphrase says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, okay? Don't be caught up in the spirit of the age. And so, but it's not saying to believers, I want you to be an isolationist. It's not saying, look, if the world watches TV, you shouldn't watch TV. If the world goes to movies, you shouldn't go to movies. If the world dances, you shouldn't dance. It's not saying be an isolationist, be in the world, not of the world. Okay? And it's also not saying that we should imitate the world. Well, whatever the world does, that's what I'm going to do. You know, if, if that's the value of the world, that's going to be, I, I just want to fit in like everybody else. No, uh, Phillips' translation is perfect. Paraphrase is perfect. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So that's why I like the word uh, insulation. For example like in a car, if you want the car to move, you have spark plugs. And if you have spark plugs that are gonna make the engine go, you have to have spark plug wires. And if those spark plug wires are not insulated, what are they gonna do? They're gonna be connected into the distributors, gonna create a a spark by the coil, and then it's gonna run down the wire until it immediately hits the intake manifold, it's gonna short out through the intake manifold, it's gonna short out through through the heads, it's gonna short out, maybe it'll hit the exhaust manifolds, it'll never get to the spark plug, you won't have anything. So you have to be insulated to the point where there can be impact. So if Jeremiah 29 is going to be true, and you're going to have you're going to have um, you're going to be a blessing to the world around you, you have to be insulated so that you can make a difference. Not squeezed into its mold, but so that you can make a difference. Without insulation, there's no impact, or things will go haywire like Wednesday night. Remember the big storm we had Wednesday night, all the lightning? It's never happened to us before, but we got struck by lightning. And, I mean, I was sitting right at the window reading, and it was just massive boom, and and lightning filled the entire room just instantaneously. And so I looked outside to think, maybe a tree got hit. And then all of a sudden, my wife, Cheryl, and I smelled smoke through the vents in our... um, in the air conditioning, and I ran down downstairs, and I, I thought it smelled electrical. I thought that the um, that the air conditioner had caught on fire, but but it was still going. And then I looked; the whole laundry room was filled with this haze, this smoke, and uh, I thought, "Oh my goodness!" So I looked behind the washer and the dryer, and sure enough, where. Tom Cannon actually put it in, where the where the floor meets where it meets the wall. There's that plastic thing where the water can drip down. That was on fire. It was just all on fire. And I'm going, oh, goodness. So I pull the plugs on the washer and the dryer, and I start dumping water. It wouldn't go out. It just kept burning and burning. And I'm throwing. I thought, I better pull the washer and dryer out. And I pulled it out. Cheryl's on 911, and she's saying, get out of the house. Get out of the house. Cheryl's a, She's saying to get out of the house. I said, I'm not getting out of the house. The house is on fire. (laughs) I've got to put it out. (laughs) If they want to get here, let them get here. I'm putting the fire out. So I pulled the washer and dryer out. And when I did, when I pulled the dryer out, that little tube, you have the cast iron pipe and then the flexible tube that goes to the gas dryer. When I pulled it out, it was like a blowtorch. That lightning had blown a hole right through that gas line. And it was catching everything on fire. So I reached up, turned the gas off, one more thing of water, put the fire out. So, I mean, I got it out real quick. Then we had four fire trucks coming. Why were you in the house? I said, I was putting the fire out. (laughs) That's why I pay my taxes, so I can put the fire out. So anyway, it was... um, Anyway, where did I go? Insulation, that's where I was going. (laughs) So now I'm going to get one of those tubes, that's insulated, it's actually lightning resistant, so the next time I've never ever turned the gas off to my house whenever we've gone on vacation. I unplug things, I turn water off, I do all that, but I've never turned the gas, I'm going to turn everything off. I'm going to do it all now. But um, So the third principle, dedication, insulation, third principle is transformation. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's that transfer. Our lives need to be different. They, they need to be transferred. They need to change. So then if we're not to love the world, what do we love? We love God. We love Jesus. We love God's word. We love God's will. It's good, acceptable, it's perfect. Uh, if, we're, if we're husbands, we're to love our wives. Not only that, if we're believers, we're to love our enemies even. We're to love our city that we're in and we're we're to be a blessing to our city. We're to love those who discipline us, and we're to love those who we discipline. But we are never to love the world's system. The Pharisees did that, Luke 11. They loved the seats of honor. They loved being honored in the marketplace. But John and Paul and Jesus make it real clear We're not to be enticed to love the world. As a matter of fact, James, using the same word desires, says it this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. John specifies it, desire, love of the flesh, love of the eyes, loving pride. He says you're enticed with your own desire, then Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So even though uh, John is an apostle of love, and he dearly loves the people he's talking to, John does not mince words. He's not saying, oh, moderation in everything. I'm, I'm so tired of hearing people say that. You know, moderation in what you eat. Yeah. You know, oh. So just a little bit of poison's okay. Don't eat a lot of poison. Just a little bit. Moderation. No. John is saying, look, no, no, not at all. Uh, Paul and John and James and Peter, they, they can't make it any clearer. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed. Don't don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Otherwise. It's like the spark plug wire leaning across the, the head before it goes into the, connects to the spark plug. No, no bang. So I know this is, this is difficult. It's difficult if you're not a Christian, it's hard for you to understand this, but what you need to understand, and what makes it hard for us, is when we go all the way back to Genesis, we were, we were really uh, made, God made us for this cosmos. We were made for this cosmos and we were made in the image of God. The problem is everything sort of went haywire. Human beings decided to rebel against God and go their own way, and then and now everything is sort of thrown into chaos. There is this big collapse, this big fall, and and people now groan under this curse. Not only people, but the cosmos itself groans until it can be released. And so, God, in His incredible love for us, uh, this is where. Jesus comes into play in order to restore our relationship with God and get things back in order. uh, There had to be a plan so God actually becomes a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. Doug talked about it last week. And where Jesus comes to earth as a perfect human being, the Savior of the world dies on the cross for us and satisfies, propitiates. He used that word last week last week, propitiate satisfies God's wrath so that his wrath was poured upon Christ on the cross instead of us. And so everything is now reconciled, put back in order. And so now we're free to make a positive influence on the world around us for uh, the gospel, for, for Jesus. And so Jesus gives us in Christ a brand new life so we can be dedicated and insulated and transformed so that we can, right up here, love God and worship and love others in community and and serve the world on mission. So I don't want to just run through this. I want you to apply this to your life because this isn't, you know, just uh, moderation. This is a very clear passage. Do not, present tense, do not, Go on, keep on loving the world or the things in the world. So let me ask you, here it is. What rivals God in your affections? I want you to answer that question. What rivals God for your affections? In other words, what is it that energizes you? What is it that gets you excited? Maybe a couple of questions to help you answer that would be, when you have discretionary time, where does that discretionary time go? Where do, if you have discretionary money, where does that discretionary money go? What rivals God for your affections? In other words, your discretionary time or your discretionary money, do they reflect your allegiance to God or do they rival God for your affections? Don't just run through that. Why don't you identify it? Don't turn your mind off. Don't ignore it. Um, If you think you're identifying it, don't let it talk back to you. Don't let it tell you, oh, it's fine, moderation and everything. You've always lived with me. You can keep on living with me. Uh, we We can balance it. We can balance it. There's no need to get radical with it now. What do you expect sin to say? Do you expect it to say anything other than that? Of course that's what it would say. Sin's life depends on you not realizing it. So just what is it? What is it that rivals God for your affections? Stop thinking about the person next to you Wondering if they're identifying the sin that you see in their lives so quickly and you're hoping that they're identifying it. What about you? I'm talking about you for God's sake, for your sake. Look at you, your heart. What rivals God in your affections? I know there are other sinners here. We're, We're here. We know we're here. We're dealing with it too. But what about you? So identify it, name it. Go ahead and just name it. What is it that you're dealing with? Identify it, name it. Praise God. Thank God that you can finally see it. Confess it, pray about it. That's the love test. That's the love test. The second test is the moral test. Do I obey God? Do I follow his will? There are a couple of key passages here that we've already looked at. Uh, the verse 17, the next verse that we're covering in 1 John 2, and the world is passing away along with its desires. So, you know, don't fall in love with it, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or as Paul, we read this one, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God. It's good, acceptable, perfect. So not only do you know the will of God, not only do you discern it, but do you do whoever does the will of God. And then he gives us the power, and you can see that in Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6, 6 6-7. We're crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He gives us the power and the life. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. The old self was crucified with him so that we're no longer enslaved to sin. So the question is, why? Why can't there be moderation in all things? I mean, why can't we love God and love the world and its system? Why can't there be a little moderation here? Why is it all or nothing? I mean, John seems to certainly think it's all or nothing. Jesus uh, says it. Paul says it. James says it. Why? Why can't those two things coexist? Well, Jesus makes it real clear why they can't coexist. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's because no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you can't serve both. You can't serve God and money uh, you can't have two masters because the outcomes are totally different between the two so the world will always demand that you put it first but God says no God says no ultimately we sang the song it was a perfect song I want you to surrender all not moderation in your surrender, you know, a little bit to me, a little bit over there, a little bit here. No, I surrender all. Uh, That's it. Uh, That's what God demands. Well, the world demands that you will engross yourself in in its concerns. But, But, you know, Jesus looks at us and he says, no, don't have anxiety about anything. I'll take care of all that stuff. Be anxious for nothing here. You know, the world will want you to be totally satisfied, find all of your satisfaction in the world. And Jesus says, no, I'm your ultimate satisfaction. You find your satisfaction in me. And the world will say, I I want you to make a name for yourself. And and Jesus says, no, I want you to humble yourself. If you're going to glory in anything, glory in the cross. The world will say, no, no. Moderation in all things. Be easy on yourself. And yet, Jesus says, no. Dread even the least sin more than even the greatest suffering. So, Jesus is saying, you can't love both because look how contrary these two masters are. Look how different the fruits are. And it's because the roots are radically different. You know, over the past 26, going on 27 years now that I've served here at Parkview, uh, I, I try to calculate it. I've gone to about 125 different congregational meetings, and it's amazing when you go to a congregational meeting, you have the budget report. Kyle, you've given the budget reports, and, and it's amazing. If the budget report isn't good, there's sort of a gloom over everything. <laughs> but it doesn't matter how other things are going i mean everybody's okay when other things go well that's great but if the budget report's bad everybody's sort of yeah but if the budget report is good you know how oh, there's sort of this cheeriness you know over everything the budget report's good that's that's nice and yet you know it's amazing as an elder board we we have really struggled you know You know, it's not like every Sunday we want to preach on money because that will turn people off. On the other hand, you don't want to ever not say anything because it's important. Uh, And we've wrestled. We've we've even, (laughs) uh, Mark Mesnick and Sheldon Schroeder and myself have written a paper on biblical giving. We've even done that. and uh, We've struggled over tithe. You know, is it a tithe? Do you want to use the word tithe? Or is it... 10%? 10%? Or do you say 33 and a third percent? Uh, do you, do you? is it pre-tax? Is it post-tax? And you know, we've wrestled with all that. Do, do you want to say, th- well, do you include benefits or not include? I mean, you can, you can just go nuts on all of this stuff. And uh, it's not that it's not important at all, but I'll tell you what it really boils down to. I mean, we can do messages on all that stuff, but it really boils down to what we're talking about right here. I think it all boils down to this passage, this passage says this, and it's in your notes, Uh, it's important, so you have it right there, if the world rivals God, the world rivals God for your heart and your affections, selfishness will always rule out. It doesn't matter what I say about tithing or pre-tax or post-tax, or include your benefits or don't include your benefits. If the world rivals your heart and your affections, selfishness will always rule out in your life. I was sitting, last night, I was sitting by one of my very best friends. We were talking a little bit about this, and even before I said that, he said about that tomorrow.) Um, Selfishness will always rule out. Um, You know, and then it doesn't matter what we say, Kyle. It doesn't matter what great visions we have. If selfishness rolls out, all these great visions that we have and and stuff we've got on the books, none of it's going to happen. If selfishness rolls out, none of it it, uh, would happen. And so I think quite honestly, uh, I think this is one of the most to-the-point passages we could ever, ever deal with. That's that's why Jesus, because he loves so dearly uh, people, that's why he spoke so forthrightly with that rich uh, young noble in Mark chapter 10. Remember when he confronted him, um, he told him to give away his stuff to the poor. Um, It's not that riches... wrong. I want you to hear me real clearly. It's not that riches are wrong. There are so many examples in the New Testament and the Old Testament of people with large amounts of wealth who use their riches for God's kingdom and God's glory and God's work in remarkable ways. So, hear me. Riches, wealth, is not the problem. It's the heart. And so this rich young noble um, specifically had a strong love for his possessions that exceeded his love for God that he was communicating on his lips. He was communicating a strong love for God on his lips, but his life didn't back it up. And so Jesus, out of love for him, out of love for him, exposed his heart so that he could see it and repent from it so that's the the love test and the moral test and now thirdly the doctrinal test real quickly this is I'm going to go through this real real quickly what do I believe about Jesus and I am I abiding in the truth about Jesus I'm going to concentrate on three verses 19 22 and 24. And um, I'm not going to read You can read it yourself. I think it's in your notes or it's certainly in your Bible. But it's talking about in the last hour. He's saying, you've heard about the Antichrist? And and this is like the capital A Antichrist, that there is a person that's coming, a specific person empowered by Satan. Uh, Daniel 7 talks about it. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about it. Matthew 24 talks about it. Romans 13 talks about it. There's a specific Antichrist uh, empowered by Satan. But then he says, but there are antichrists. Among you are many antichrists have come. So it's more the generic. He's talking about false teachers is what he's talking about. These false teachers have come in among you. They're dispersed now because they didn't stick with us. They didn't persevere because they, they really are not teaching the Jesus that we're teaching. That's basically what he's saying. They're, they're lying to you. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And then he calls them to abide in Christ. So the point is this. The point he's making in this passage is this. Do I believe that Jesus is God? That's the test. Do I believe that Jesus is Christ, is is God? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Okay, it resulted in a division between the man, Jesus Christ, and the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And probably he's talking about the Gnostics who were there who taught that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. And they were having a horrible time trying to wed these things uh, together. So things like the incarnation, we sang about that, the incarnation, things like the physical resurrection of the body, those kinds of things were abhorrent to these Anti-Christs. They were against Christ. Pro-Jesus against Christ. That's why I like to use. I I sort of cringe a little bit if all we say is Jesus and we don't say Jesus Christ. I like those two together because it it addresses that whole issue of Gnosticism. Um, It's the two together. And so it was abhorrent to them trying to put those two together. They're convinced that God would not suffer the indignities of being crucified. So Paul, uh, John is saying, look, those guys left. They really weren't of us. They weren't left. You weren't taught that way. You know, don't believe what they were taught. They went out from us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So the whole point of this is how do I know that I have eternal life? And so John gives us three ways that we can know that we have eternal eternal life. That's the whole reason for this book. There's three tests for authentic Christianity. There's the love test. Am I so dedicated to God that there's nothing that will rival God in my affections? That's the love test. Then the, secondly, there is the moral test. Do I when, I, when I discern the will of God, do I actually, out of a pure heart, do I obey what God says? Do I obey the commands of God? Do I, do I eagerly follow as well. And then thirdly, the doctrinal test. What do I believe that Jesus Christ is God? Do I believe that? Am I growing to maturity? Am I abiding in that truth? And then uh, what, what about the implication? What is John saying in the implication here? Well, the implication is quite simple. If I'm not loving God more than anything else, and if I'm really not obeying the commands of God if I'm not really loving others, and if I'm not believing the truth about Jesus Christ, his point is, then you really don't have a comforting assurance that you're a Christian. And so he would urge us to take these tests to make sure you're a Christian. Or Paul, uh, Doug read this passage last week, Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, You need to take the time to examine yourselves. 13 verse 5, examine yourselves, see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or, don't you realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You know, it's amazing. Pastors of old would often call their congregation to take that test. And uh, Spurgeon was one who did it consistently. Because he loved his congregation so much, he didn't want people to be sitting there uh, wondering if they're believers with a false assurance. He wanted them to have the real assurance that they were believers. So I'm going to read you an example of what Spurgeon would frequently say to his congregation. Beware, I pray thee, to be presuming that thou art saved, If with thy heart thou dost trust in Jesus, then thou art saved. If thou sayest, I trust in Jesus, it doth not save thee. If thy heart be renewed and thou hates the things that thou once did hate and love the things that thou once did hate, uh, if thou hast really repented and there be a thorough change of mind and thou be born again, then thou hast reason to rejoice. But... If there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then thou just saying, I am saved, is but thy own assertion, and it may delude, but it will not deliver thee. Our prayer ought to be, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed with real faith and with real salvation, with a trust in Jesus that is the essential of faith, not with a conceit which begets credulity. God preserve us from imaginary blessings. So John's reason for being just a little tough here, sort of an in-your-face kind of passage, is so that we don't sit here with cold hearts, so that we don't just sit here hearing these things and let them roll off of our backs like water off of a duck's back. You know, it's so that we can allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict us of sin and to draw us by the grace and by the mercy of God so that we would then begin to abide in Him and have the assurance that He wants us to have. Um, You know, this is why John wrote the letter. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he's saying, look, I wrote this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that, that you might have this assurance, that you might know that you have eternal life. And so that's why John ends this section with that third a plea to abide, abide in him. Yeah. Let's all stand up and um, I'll close in prayer. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer your questions. We don't want you to leave without, without that full assurance uh, for sure. Let me pray. And then you're dismissed. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you have opened the door to each of us for eternal life. It, it's a door which seemed uh, for so long closed because of our sins, but, but you have just thrown it wide open through your Son, Jesus. And I pray that each of us here this morning would examine our faith to know whether or not we really do have eternal life. Lord, we ask that you to speak to us clearly through your Spirit about, about the loves of our heart, Speak to us clearly about what we know and what we believe about you and how we obey you out of the joy of our heart. And if there's any here, Lord, who don't know you or who is doubting their assurance of their eternal life, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his works as as a comforter. And then, Lord, give them the assurance that they need today. And, Lord, for those who might be living contrary to your word, if the world is... um, just rivaling God for their heart or for their affections. If they disbelieve in the truth or living in sin, we pray that in your grace and in your mercy, you would show them the truth about yourself. I pray that in all gentleness and all love, that you would break each of us in our sin, that you could show us the glories of your grace, show us the glories of your new life that you can bring in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.